Today I wanted to talk a little bit about something that I think, well, I'll tell you, is one of the greatest privileges that you and I as human beings could have. And I know that we live in fast-paced living. A lot of our lifestyles, we're busy, we're so scheduled so tightly that oftentimes we don't seem to have room to breathe, as they would say, or to add any more to our plate, as the saying goes. But there is a privilege, brethren, there's a privilege, a great privilege, that I think many of us do underestimate the value of and don't take advantage of it like we should. And that privilege is simply, and what I want to talk about today, a little bit, we're just going to kind of scratch the surface on it because I've got a follow-up presentation to this. Uh, for those of you who will be interested, that we'll take up back uh, when I get back here. Uh, that will be to this, but the privilege that I'm talking about, and I'll tell you what the other subject will be as we go through this, but the privilege I want to talk about today is simply prayer. Prayer. The greatest privilege afforded to humankind. Do you realize that? The opportunity to get before the very living God of the universe, kneel or depending on where you're praying, and that's part of what I want to talk about too because we should have good quality time in our prayer life because so often we don't take the time of, of good quality time to engage in prayer. Oh, we may pray while we're driving in our car. I do. <laughs> you know, we may uh, pray, you know, when we're uh, sitting and waiting for something. Uh, we may uh, get up, you know, we're looking out in our backyard, we're sitting in our chair drinking coffee, uh, and we may say a few words there. Maybe like I do, I don't know about you, but I think this is a very good habit that I'd like to suggest to all of you, that before you even get up out of your bed, you wake up, you open your eyes, you say, ah, Thank God I made it through another night. How about that? Here I am, Father. <laughs> Thanks for another day, <laughs> you know. But uh, these are things, brethren, that, yes, those are all nice to do, and when you can, certainly don't uh, dismiss that as not being valuable. But the reality of it is you need some quality time, too. You need some good quality time on your knees, in privacy, where you can think, put things to the side, have some quiet time, clear your mind and go through the cathartic value of you and God one-on-one. -on -one. That's important. That's important. I mean, you have the privilege of going on the sea of glass. Spiritually speaking, that's what you're doing. You have an opportunity to bow your head before the living God with Jesus alive, alive at the right hand of the Father, and a rainbow over his throne. Sad to say, some have taken that rainbow to mean other things. It's an abomination in that regard, if you know what I'm talking about regarding the homosexual community. Because that rainbow represents glory, honor. That rainbow represents the very authority of God and all of the brightness that he brings, hopefully, to the lives of all of us. But there you are, on the sea of glass, before 24 elders. Jesus on his right hand, as I said. And you have the opportunity to be able to petition God to affect circumstances in the lives of you or you. That's awesome. 
to bring the name of a person, to bring the name of a person and ask God face to face, son to father, son to father, daughter to father, dad, father, can you help so-and-so in this way? Or <laughs> you can say, father, help me. <laughs> you know, I need some help too in this or that or the other thing. You know, I can't do it. I just can't. It's in your hands. It's beyond my pay grade, as they would say. It's just above my head. I, just, I can't reach it. And I need your help in this case. But my point is, brethren, that is a big responsibility. A tremendous responsibility to insert yourself into the life of another person and be able to a petition, to appeal, to invoke actual activity, intercession of God in the life of another person or a set of circumstances, condition, something that needs changing, that you know you're only a human being, one, there's no way, you're not big enough, you're not powerful enough, you don't have the influence. Like I said, you're not in that circle, but you're in the circle where there's a network of empowerment that can affect things outside and beyond your ability to actually do something. Because oftentimes we think, well, we got to fix it. You know, I'm the fixer, I got to fix it. I'm the one that I've got to involve myself because there's nobody else that can do it. You know, and we forget, not even God? Uh, oh, stop. You're getting a little bit off kelter here. You can include God in it and add some empowerment to the situation that may even be more realistic than you thinking that you're the fixer. Because we can't fix everything, brother. Sometimes things are beyond our control. And so therefore, over here in the book of Hebrews, we're told not to discount this. Don't dismiss the value of this. Don't, don't poo-poo this, as they would say. This is a very important recognition in the Christian, the life of a Christian, to recognize we have this opportunity, let me put it that way. We have this birthright, let me put it that way. It is and should be considered something of an allowance for us that is not only an allowance, it's expected by God from our Father to us that we would engage in this. And what is that? Over here, Hebrews chapter 4, Notice, verse 14, let's break into the context. Seeing then, talking about Jesus, regarding his high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, we have an intercessor is what we're being told, a living intercessor on the right hand of the Father, where we're told this, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our, profet to our vocation, to our lifestyle, to our way of life, to our habits, to our personas, to the way we are. This is in our DNA. This is in our DNA. It's not just a Sabbath go to meeting DNA. It's just not a, you know, a holy day DNA. This is our lifestyle. This is the way we think. It's the way we do things. It's the way we behave. It's our profession. Our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We do. He can be touched 
with our infirmities. There's no doubt about it. But was in all points, and this is why, because he too was attempted like as we are, yet he was without sin. Let us therefore, therefore, because we know this, therefore, here's the consequence, let us, let us come boldly, confidently, rightly, respectfully, of course, humbly, of course, but expectingly, expectingly, knowing full well you have an opportunity, an open door to talk to the very living God and expect results, expect performance, expect change of whatever that may be. Now, not always does it happen to be that way because sometimes our will doesn't line up with God's will. That's another story. But the fact of it is we still have to make those adjustments point is that doesn't dismiss our sense of responsibility or our right to come boldly under the throne of grace, verse 16 here, Hebrews 4, that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. And of course, over here in Hebrews 11, we're reminded this, that in so doing that, as pointed out in Hebrews 4, Hebrews 11 And in verse 6, we have to mix it with this characteristic. This is important, that we go believing. For it's told here, as the writer tells us in verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe. That's a mandate. You must trust. You must commit. You must know and understand God has your best interest at heart. Whether it goes the way you want it or not, he still has your best interest at heart. Regardless of what your will may be versus what God's will may be, it's up to us to concede and commit to that will of God over, over our own. Over our own. And so we're told, believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So, prayer is a significant habit, brethren. And I say a habit because it should be a regularity with us. shouldn't be irregular. And oftentimes, prayer basically is lacking and somewhat anemic in our lives simply because we just don't flat out, and I'm just going to be frank, don't take the time. And when I say don't take the time, what I mean by that is quality time. I mean taking time, shut the door, figuratively speaking, whether it's in a room or whatever, all I'm saying is private time, not in your car, not while you're waiting for somebody. I mean, all of those things serve their purpose. But a regular diet of that kind of quickie prayer, fast food prayer, (laughs) you know, is not really going to make it. In the long term, a good relationship is developed with good quality communication whether it's in the physical realm with son to father, daughter to father, daughter to mother, mother to father. Uh, you know, what, what I'm saying here is basically the way you can secure your success in any relationship is what? Communicate, communicate, communicate. You stop communicating, guess what? It goes south. It don't get any better. It's going to get worse. Stop communicating. Isolate yourself. Polarize yourself. Cut all communication off. Don't respond. I don't like you. That's it. Boom, we're done. Guess what? We have just severed hope, hope of ever being able to reconcile, you see. And that's not fair 
to the person, the other person, or to yourself. And certainly not the kind of reflection God wants to see among human beings, let alone within his church, let alone within his church. That's another story. So my point is here, this is a significant habit because it affords us to bond with God. That's one lesson that teaches us. But we're going to go through some other things that I want to really get to here because I haven't really started talking about what I want to talk about yet. (laughs) But my point is, is that it does teach us to bond with God. It also helps us to minimize our self. You know, when I start thinking about, for instance, Carly's girlfriend, Diane, longtime church member, 57 years old, who's now at home dying of cancer, surrounded by her family, which we've been bringing her name up in prayer. And you, Some of you people, some of us, we know her uh, very well. I've never had the privilege of meeting her, but I know her in prayer. I know her by name. And it's important, brethren, when you bring these names, names before people, that you, though you may not even know what they look like, You're familiar with the circumstances, you're familiar with the name, and you know what you should be praying for as far as that particular person's uh, situation is concerned. And hopefully, in so doing, you do minimize your attention or our self-centeredness on ourselves, because that's what prayer teaches us also, is to minimize yourself and to be more outgoing, being more what? We've heard this over and over and over from decade to decade to decade, selfless to be more selfless. We've been told this, rather than the way of get, (laughs) you do the way of giving. And giving is all about expressing concern and and, uh, obvious attention uh, to uh, and for others or circumstances that may uh, be surrounding certain individuals or issues that may need to be affected. A third thing that uh, certainly we all can learn from prayer and of which is very important in light of the fact that you and I are being called to be kings and priests in the world tomorrow, literally being called to be servants of mankind, of mankind. So what does prayer teach us? It teaches us to be intercessors and gives us pointers on servant leadership. That's what Christianity is all about learning the ins and the outs of servant leadership, how to be of service, how to be selfless in that manner so that you, even at and even if it inconveniences you, yet nevertheless be willing to sacrifice whatever effort is necessary to sacrifice. But again, it goes on and on that there are a lot of lessons, and these are just a a few things here on the surface that we scratch on the top that we can learn from from, uh, prayer and what prayer can do for us. So this is what I kind of want to do today, and this is what I want to talk about a little bit. I want to drill down on some points on lessons we can learn from prayer. And if you want a title for this presentation, that's basically it, Lessons We Can Learn from prayer. And the first one I'd like to touch on is that it teaches us concern. Over here in Ephesians chapter 6, chapter 6 in Ephesians, we read this. Verse 18, we read, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. 
And in this case, Paul, figuratively speaking, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And brethren, I can't tell you more than I I can just say it, I guess, is that the ministry of Jesus Christ today needs your prayers. We need your prayers more than ever before for a lot of reasons. Because you know what? We're human too. And you know what? We too get discouraged. You know what? Sometimes we don't feel like getting up and giving a sermon. You know what? Sometimes during the week I don't feel like, nor do some of my comrades in arms feel like, putting sermons together sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) But my point is, we're human. We need your prayers. You need my prayers. I pray for you. I hope you pray for me. Because as Paul points out here in the next verse expressing the concern, and that's prayer teaches concern. Verse 18, he's expressing concern that we should be praying, supplicating, we should be cognizant of, watching, persevering, and supplicating for all the saints, verse 18 of chapter 6 of Ephesians 19, and for me, he says, Paul does, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. I have a sense of responsibility, Paul is saying here, that compels me to sacrifice my life for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he characterizes it as he's in chains. I don't know how many of you picture your ministers in chains, Uh, Hopefully it won't literally come to that at some point. But the reality of it is, brethren, we know through prophetic writ that it's not going to get better in the future for Christians, and that includes the ministry. The Apostle Paul here is already appealing and opining over that fact and attempting to encourage the people, the saints, to pray for him, figuratively speaking, the ministry, so that I may open, verse 19, the rest of the verse, my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. You know, when you go into a public forum and you talk about whether it be a funeral in some cases or a campaign like I'm going to do in Arizona, you don't know who's out in that audience. And when you start talking about all of these holy cows that these people have that are sacred cows, I should say, sacred cows, you know, about the reward of the saved being heaven, Christmas is the birth of Christ. Uh, Easter represents the sign of Jesus Christ's Messiah. I said Easter, not past Easter. And you start hitting these sacred cows. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what kind of questions you get. You don't know what kind of attitude you're going to get. You don't know what kind of threats you're going to get. And you do sometimes get threats. My point, the ministry needs your encouragement and continued prayers that we may have the courage. It takes courage. Do you know it takes courage to work out a problem between you and me? Because guess what? You may not have the courage, or I may not have the courage. I would rather just do this. Easier. (laughs) I don't have to talk to you, you see. Brethren, we need, we need prayers so that we not only have boldness, but we have the courage to maintain our relationships and our feelings and our our. Uh, concerns here as pointed out that prayer should teach us for each other. Point two, prayer teaches forgiveness. This is point two. First, it teaches us concerns as pointed out right here. But it also 
should teach us forgiveness. Notice this over here, the Apostle John, late in his years. He's getting ready to close it down. He's writing this epistle. And he says here in chapter 1, and in verse 7, beginning in chapter 1. I think it's 1 John. Is it 1 John chapter 1? Nope, chapter 2. Chapter 2. And in verse 7. Yeah. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. And again, a new commandment now I'm writing unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. He that says he is in the light hates his brother is in darkness even until now. We're kidding ourselves, brethren. Again, prayer, if you're bringing that person's name in prayer to God, how can you hate anybody? in the church. In my business associations back in the day when I was a uh, uh, water treatment guy, I used to have bosses and or fellow sales reps in the marketing and sales department that, frankly, I didn't like. But you know what? In some cases, I still brought their names, even though they weren't in the church, but they were in contact with God, as if I may say so boldly, because your Bible teaches us this principle, because they come in contact with God's people they're in contact with God. And by network, God's attention is involved with the relationships His people are involved with. Therefore, it's incumbent on all of us to include others that we may be considered spiritual Gentiles. Nevertheless, pray for them. You have a neighbor that's not in the church, you're not going to pray because they're stricken down with some kind of disease. Shame on us if we do that. As a matter of fact, you ought to go over there, knock on the door, and say, Molly, can I come in? I'd like to pray for you. And I bet $10 to the donuts, Molly wouldn't mind, even though she's not in God's church, you see. We need to think about these things, brother. Get out of the box and understand that we have to and should be concerned and, of course, forgiving to, uh, to people and, and continue to uh, interplay with them, as he says here, and not hate anybody, even if they do you wrong. Even if they do you wrong. I could tell you a story about a guy I used to work with. Oh, man, I'll tell you what. It was like embracing a ball of fire with this guy. And no matter what you seemed to t- say to the guy, and I was his boss. I was, unfortunately, I was his boss. He wasn't mine. <laughs> But I'll tell you what, he was, as they would say, a handful. Maybe a handful and a half, I don't know. But it does you well, brethren. I can tell you this. I've seen it in my own life to pray for people like that. Because believe it or not, uniquely enough, as God got involved in the lives of Pharaoh, in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, in the life of Cyrus, in the, and these are all Gentiles, but they weren't part of Israel, if you get my drift here. God moved on those guys. God moved on the prostitute or the whore of Rahab, moved on her heart. God can move on people, even though they're not in God's church. He can move leaders of countries with prayers of God's people. If we'd only get on our knees and believe and get involved and engaged because this is our world, too, even now, regardless. 
We have a role, a different role, of course. We're not running the show. <laughs> the show will be run by us eventually, and we will take over the Middle East and rule the world from the city of Jerusalem under the guise, and not under the guise, but under the leadership of Jesus Christ when he lands on the Mount of Olives. That comes later. In the meantime, we still have our roles. Somewhat reduced, nevertheless, they are important roles. And here, the Apostle John continues, and he says, look, Again, a new commandment I'm writing unto you. Let me go back. Reiterate verse 8. Which thing is true in him and in you? Because the darkness is past and the true light now shines, meaning Jesus has come, and to us he has come to our lives. Therefore, there's light now in our lives, not darkness, or at least there should be. And if we block that light out, and if we're baptized, and we block that light out, shame on us. We have an obligation as Christians to be compelled to do the right thing. Listen to what John says. He says this, verse 9, He that says he is in the light and hates his brother, (laughs) like it or not, they're in darkness and they don't even know it. Or maybe they do know it. Doesn't matter. If you hate your brother, or sister, you hate anybody. And, and brethren, you could extend this out. We, we don't necessarily have to keep this limited within the church. You shouldn't hate anybody at work. You shouldn't hate anybody in college. You shouldn't hate that guy that you're competing with or that you're, you, you wish you had his, his role or his position on the team. You wish he'd break his leg or bust his arm or somebody would take his head off, you know, so you could have his position. No, 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 you shouldn't think that way. You shouldn't think that way. That's improper, inappropriate. It's not Christian. Work harder. And if all you can do is make second string, figuratively speaking, whatever that second string may represent in your life, whatever it is, hey, deal with it. Deal with it. And enjoy the role as best you can with what it affords you in terms of your expression. He goes on here, continues. He says, he that says... He is in the light and hates his brothers in darkness, even until now. Verse 10, he that loves his brother abides in the light. And there is none occasion or none scandal of stumbling in him. The Greek word could mean scandal. There shouldn't be scandals among us. There shouldn't be anything secret among us. There shouldn't be things that are bothering me about you that you don't know is bothering me about you. (laughs) In all fairness, what does Matthew 18 tell us? If Beth offends me and doesn't know she offended me, if I don't tell her, how fair is that to her in knowing what she did to me? So I'm going to stand back and not do anything? No, I have an obligation. I have to explain, sit her down, talk. What is the problem? Let's talk through this. How do we get in the light? We can't get in the light unless we what? Communicate, 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 because that shows concern, and it does reap, it does reap, in this case, forgiveness, or at least it should reap forgiveness. And, verse 11, he that hates his brother is in darkness, walks in darkness, and knows not where he goes, because that darkness 
has blinded his eye. Notice this over here in Matthew 6. Jesus really drills down on this, brethren. This is so very important. We get this to the marrow of our bones, especially those of us who are baptized, where he says this, and I mean to tell you, he really drills down now on this. In chapter 6, And in verse 7, he says this, get out of repetitious prayers. That's the first point. Get out of repetitious prayers, because if you're in repetitious prayers, all that's going to do is blind you from what really needs to be addressed and how you can get out of the circle to really get at the issues. And part of getting really at the issues, as he goes down now through the example prayer, not the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer is in John 17. That's where the real Lord's Prayer is, John 17. But this is an example prayer. And when he goes through this example prayer, he hits on verse 12 with, with regard to this second point of what prayer should teach us. And he says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive others our debtors. Because there are sometimes, maybe in an offensive situation, there's something that's not really worth bringing up. Maybe I don't really have an issue with Pete. And I think about it, I pray about it. And even though he said what he said to me, I say, you know, I should be bigger than that. I'm just going to let it ride. Even though he offended me, I'm going to cut him some slack. It's not, we pick our battles, in other words. In prayer, you go through the cathartic, through the cathartic, cathartic self actualizing experience of really bearing down on yourself to figure out, you know, should I really take my wife to task on this? Yeah, I should. No, I shouldn't. Yeah, I shouldn't. Yeah, I should. You know, and we bounce back and forth. We paddle. We volley. We pick our battles based on the realizations that we come through through prayer. Prayer can be very cathartic. It can be very self actualizing it can be a very good meditative experience too just bouncing ideas off of god but you can't do that driving in your car <laughs> you can't do that you know uh as old garner ted armstrong used to say hanging upside down in an elevator shaft that's not the time really to start i mean that is a good time to pray but but it's not the time to build your prayer life around you know my point is these kinds of prayers where you're trying to come to better understanding of your own behavior, your own choices, your own realizations, prayer can be so very, very self-actualizing that maybe you come to the fact of, you know what, I'm just going to cut this off. I, I, I'm just going to let it slide. And here we see, and lead us not into temptation. This is the latter part of that example, prayer, verse 13, Matthew 6. But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Let it be. Amen. End of example. Now, redress the issue. He comes back immediately, verse 14. And where does he go? Why? Because this is important. This is important. We need to learn how to forgive men 
their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you because, here's the barometer, if you don't do that, you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will God forgive yours. That's major. So the question becomes, in your prayers, in my prayers, I hope, how forgiving are we? Are we a forgiving people? Are we a sensitive people in that regard and forgive? And if we have something against somebody, are we willing courageously to walk before them and try to talk through it so that we don't fall in darkness, as we're told? It's important. Point three, prayer teaches appreciation. Prayer teaches appreciation. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord... Uh, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And this is something to appreciate. It gets a little bit clearer to us over here in 1 Peter. If I may take you over there for a moment in chapter 1, notice this one. And how appreciative should we be for this realization of what Peter, the apostle, tells us in regards to to what our destiny is and why, in all due respect, the things we find ourselves addressing in this life should be held in perspective and compared to this so that all things that we involve ourselves with that may affect our behaviors, our attitudes, that may cause us pain and suffering, that may maybe even cause us to go off the rails a little bit, that we don't allow that for fear of losing this of what Peter says, because this is something to deeply appreciate. And if you deeply appreciate it, you're not going to let anything come between you and this. Notice, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, the apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter says, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge, the predetermined plan, elect, uh, elected according to that predetermined plan that was created, drawn up, designed, and basically installed, as Timothy was told by Paul, before the world was. This plan of salvation, of God reproducing himself and bringing other beings into his family was an idea that was designed, constructed, engineered before the world was. And you and I are elected to be a part of that predetermined, that foreknowledge plan of bringing many sons and daughters into the family of God for the purpose of being servant leaders in the world tomorrow to teach the rest of mankind in due course of time the way of God, the Torah, the laws of God, the writings, the prophets, the epistles, the apocalyptic writings of Revelation and all the things that go with it. This is, brethren, I hope you take this seriously because this is your future. 
And Peter goes on and he says, according to the foreknowledge of the Father through sanctification, that separation of the Spirit, you have God's Holy Spirit, you are now separated, you're sanctified under the obedience, you are compelled, you are sanctified to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us. He has inserted his Holy Spirit and begotten us. We are fertilized eggs destined for a rebirthing experience from flesh to spirit. As Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus, what are you telling me? He said, you're taught, you know, and yet you don't accept. Nicodemus, no man's gone to heaven, he says in 3.13. No man's gone to heaven. No, 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 no. Only me. <laughs> Not me, Jesus. <laughs> he says, and he made it clear. He made it clear to Nicodemus that what he was talking about there in John 3 was metabolic change from a material, one material to another material. That's what born again is all about. And it all begins with an impregnation of God's Holy Spirit in you via repentance and baptism. That's why it's so important to get God's Holy Spirit. Young people, it's important to get God's Holy Spirit. That's the trigger. That is what really defines you to be part of the God family. We're in begettal stages right now. And the apostle here states it very clearly. And again, I reiterate, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope. And that hope was what I just told, uh, mentioned by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That is what is showing us the hope. That's the lively hope. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be in that metabolic condition. I want to be able to walk through walls. I want to be able to travel at the speed of thought. I want to be able to eat when I want to and because I want to, not because I have to. If I want to sleep, I want to sleep, not because I have to sleep, but because I want to sleep. Wouldn't that be neat? Isn't that a cool way of life? I think I'll have a good steak. Ah, uh, yeah. Do I need the steak? No, I don't need the steak. I want the steak. <laughs> you know? I mean, that is a tremendous, tremendous different lifestyle where no obstacles of the physical world has any impingement or infringement or obstacle. They're not obstacles to you anymore. You want to walk through the wall, you go through the wall. That's what Jesus taught us. He said, hey, guys, this is for you. And it, it was so, so mind-blowing, so stunning, so amazing. It compelled those guys to give their lives for it. They died for it. You can make the case every one of those original apostles died for it, except for John, perhaps, who died maybe old age, peacefully. But the reality of it is, brethren, it was a vision that they captured. And here it is, verse 4 stated, an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved in heaven you're not going to heaven. It's reserved in it. Why is it reserved? Because Christ is the King of kings and he has been given the authority to raise the dead. And what's he going to do? He's coming back to earth to raise the dead. <laughs> we know that. We're not going to heaven. The Bible says Christ is returning to earth, landing on the Mount of Olives. And when he comes, the dead in Christ shall rise first and those which are alive will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Meet him in the air. And where are they going? Back to heaven, like the rapture teaches? No, the Bible doesn't teach that. They're going to the land, the, the Mount of Olives in the land of Jerusalem, landing there. 
and setting up an administrative work that is going to fill the earth with the Word of God like the seas cover the seabeds. It's an awesome picture that you're a part of, that I'm a part of. Don't let anything stop us, brethren, from it. Who are kept by the power of God, that's the Holy Spirit, through faith, through belief, unto salvation, because that's what it's going to be, ready to be revealed in the last time. It is being revealed today in these last times in the 21st century as clear as it ever was expounded in the days of this information. The New Testament, early New Testament church understood these things. That's why the Apostle John was so livid in his first, second, and third epistles. He was livid over the fact that people were twisting the truth. And he couldn't believe that people were, as Paul said, believing a different gospel. And why? Because of the penetration of so much paganism, Hellenism, Mithraism, and all the things that were going on that was twisting and mixing and intermingling the truth of God with so much of what we see today that has been adopted by the Catholic Church and passed down to all the sister churches called the Protestant churches. And, of course, then we have the majority of the whole Christian movement believing all kinds of things, even Gnostic beliefs. There are Christian churches that believe that Jesus never died. They think he was in Tartaru for three days or a day and a half, speaking to demons. Well, if you don't have a dead Savior, you don't have a Savior. He was dead. Christ was dead. If he didn't die, you don't have a Savior. He came to die for mankind. What does that mean? He was unplugged. He was not active. He was in the hands of God the Father for those three days and three nights. And when he said, why have you forsaken me? He saw that father walking away from him, leaving him alone. And you can make that case, brethren. And that's an awesome, awesome price to pay for you and I so that we might have what Peter is talking about here. So, it should also teach us, point four, it teaches us concern, forgiveness, appreciation. Point four, it should teach us thankfulness. Over here in Ephesians, let's go back to Ephesians, chapter 5, thankfulness, chapter 5, in the book of Ephesians. And we read here in verse 19, uh, we read these particular scriptures, 19. Speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. We should enjoy ourselves. This should be one happy family. God's church should be a, a community of happiness and joy. We should be looking forward to the Sabbath every, every time it comes around so that we can enjoy the companionship of each other, giving thanks always for, for the, um, all things unto God and Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. What does that mean? That means the ministry should submit itself to the people and the people should submit itself to the ministry. Together we work in mutual respect, serving God for the greater whole. The ministry is not an elite group and nor should disrespect come from the brethren because they're not perceived as an elite group. There's nothing special about the ministry. All it means is it's a separate function. That's all it is. It's nothing great about it. It's just a function. 
just like the diaconate is a function, just like what you may be. If you're gifted in playing the piano like my wife is, it's a function. It doesn't make her a better person than me because I play drums. <laughs> and we fight when we get at home because she's playing the piano. <laughs> no, we don't do that. I mean, it's just differences. It's just differences, that's all. And together with our gifts, hopefully we bring the value up and we all mutually benefit from the pleasures of what each other can bring to the table. And that's what he's saying here, that there should be great thankfulness for that. Notice over here in 1 Thessalonians. Let's go over here to 1 Thessalonians uh, and read this particular scripture. And that is in chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5. And we read here in verse 17. Notice this. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. He's given a litany of, uh, here of things that he, uh, we should do as he closes out this first writing uh, to the Thessalonians. And he says, pray without ceasing in everything. Give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Give thanks for everything that you have. As soon as you wake up in that bed, open your eyes, give thanks for another day. Regardless of how tough it might be, regardless of what might be in terms of the pressures and stresses that you're dealing with, thank God you have another day to serve Him and hopefully affect the life of someone else that might just be something that you said or did for somebody that brings them maybe to, to an experience, an encounter with God. Wouldn't that be something if you were used accordingly in that fashion? Number five, prayer teaches dependence on God. I'm only going to turn to one scripture here, but I'm going to list a few. Hopefully you've got a pencil, you can write these down. But I'm going to turn to Matthew 7 here and read this. But due to time, and I can see the timer, I sense time is getting away from me here. So I want to just reference Matthew 7, 7 through uh, verse 7, and we'll pick it up here in verse 7. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek, you shall find. Knock, it shall be opened to you. For everyone that asks, receives. He that seeks, finds. To him that knocks, it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom, if his son asks for bread, he will give, he will give him a stone. Or if he says a fish, he's going to give him a serpent. If then being evil know how you know how to give good gifts to your children, your own children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask Him? And granted, brethren, and this goes into my second sermon of follow-up on this, which I'm going to give you the title of here shortly, but point being is this goes to play in a lot of areas with regard to the fact that Sometimes God's will doesn't line up with our will. What we want and what we're praying for, the end result, doesn't always come that way to us. It comes differently. Then the question is, hmm, what am I supposed to learn from this? And the question is, are you big enough? Are you courageous enough to look into it honestly, brutally honest in some cases? And take on the consideration that it may be you that are causing the issue. And it's you that needs to change. God doesn't need to change anything. It might just be you that needs to make the moves. Health, 
different circumstances, segments of what I'm talking about, all have a different play, a different approach. And we'll get into some of those details in the follow-up sermon on this. But my point that I want to make on this one is that it's important that we recognize that in this case, dependence on God, prayer should teach us a dependence on God. But with that lesson learned comes the sub-question, and that is, are you courageous enough strong enough, mature enough to handle the answer when it doesn't line up with what you wanted. That's important to recognize. These supportive scriptures to this very point five of dependence on God, prayer teaches dependence on God, 1 John 5, 14 through 15. 1 Peter 3, verse 12. Gospel of John. 931 Psalms chapter 4 verse 1 each one of those scriptures is a sermon in itself sermon in itself brethren and uh, certainly bears and merits uh, you to take some time with regard to the uh, follow-up scriptures and reading that point six prayer teaches us to trust and to hope Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 8. I'd like to turn there. The Bible within the Bible. That's what I always call this chapter, as many have before me. And here and in verse 24, we read this. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for? And that's logical. I mean, if I, if I hope for something that I'm, I'm praying for, in this case, the context, of course, and don't let me uh, try to uh, pervert these scriptures. The context is regarding salvation, of course. But by extension, the principle of hope is applied to anything for that matter that we're engaged with that we still don't have. You know, I hope for a bigger house. I, I hope for a better job. I, I hope for better health. I hope for better relationships. I, I hope for a better marriage. I hope that I can find a mate. You know, I'm single. I hope I can find a, a woman or a guy, you know. Uh, these are hopes, and hope applies in the same way that if you don't know it, well, it's, then it's still, if you don't have it, it's still hope. But once you have it, once I get married, I find the girl, and I marry her, well, then I, there's no need anymore to hope for another woman, unless I'm a low-down guy. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it, it serves its purpose. I've, I've got the new car I wanted, you know, or I, I won the lottery. You know? <laughs> I hope to win the lottery. But my point is, once you have what you have, you don't hope for it anymore, you move on to another hope, <laughs> you know. But my point is, in this case, as Paul is pointing out here, we hope uh, for those things that we don't have, but verse 25 now, Romans 8, verse 25, but if we hope for that which we don't see, we see not, then, then, <laughs> do we have patience? Then do we have patience um, to wait for it? Are you willing to work harder? Are you willing to sacrifice more? Are you willing to do whatever it is, whatever hoop you've got to go through in order to get it? These are things. Are you, are you willing to pay the price, the cost, count the cost? Are you willing to do that? Because it may take some time. You've got to have the patience as you pursue your pursuit of hoping uh, to achieve or accomplish whatever goal or objective that you have in mind. So it does develop that. And, of course, once these things are accomplished, trust 
uh, is the side benefit of that development. So these first six items, uh, that of teaching us prayer, teaching us concern, forgiveness, appreciation, thankfulness, fives, dependence on God, and trust and hope, prayer teaches us trust and hope, are all very important lessons we can learn through prayer. This seventh one is a big one. And that's the one we're going to leave for later under the title, Hindrances to Prayer. Hindrances to Prayer. We're not going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about that later. But this is number seven. Prayer teaches us not to sin anymore. What am I talking about? The woman caught in adultery. Christ did the writing on the dirt, right? Everybody took off and disappeared, left him and her together. Tells her to stand up. Says, where are your accusers? She says, I don't see anybody. He says, nope, I don't either. You're forgiven. But he then said this, go and sin no more. Isaiah chapter 59, I'm just going to reference it, verses 1 and 2. What stops us from answered prayer in most cases? Simply stated, it's our sins, our iniquities separate us from God. Oh, heal me, heal me of my sickness. As I continue under the guise of a holistic doctor, uh, eating brown sugar, I mean, go to the max, but I continue to eat my potato chips and drink about four gallons of Pepsi or Coca-Cola every day, you know. Help me to lose weight as I'm gaining and gaining and gaining. Help me to lose weight, but I'm not changing anything. You get my point. Brethren, there are responsibilities on us, on us, to also be cognizant of certain things that need to be changed. Go and sin no more, point seven. Go and sin no more. Prayer teaches us not to go and sin no more. Father, I'm so sorry I did this. Oh, man, I, got really, I really messed up. You know, help me, help me. As I go out and do it again. <laughs> oh, Father, help me now. No, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. I go out and do it again. Why aren't you helping me, God? Well, stop doing what you're doing. Well, I can't. It's your fault. No, it's not. It's your fault. You're making wrong choices. We'll say that for later. That's going to be another presentation that we'll talk about at another time. But that will be titled Hindrances to Prayer. Prayer is unique in many ways, brethren, but it's a two-way street. Keep that in mind. It is a two-way street, and we have to be cognizant of the fact that it does indeed cause intercession uh, from God. It does help us to learn lessons. And it is a reciprocal, mutual benefit to all of us. That of the one you may be praying for, as well as even if while you're praying for them, is helping you too. As I pointed out in these seven points of lessons that we can learn through prayer. So brethren, I need your prayers. You need mine. I'll make a deal. <laughs> you pray for me and I'll pray for you. Because we need each other's prayers in this wild, wild west of a world we live in. And it is a wild, wild west of a world that we live in. With the ways that we can communicate now and the, the speed of communication and response with the internet, Twitters and tweets and, you know, uh, all these Spotify's and into, in, in Instagrams and what have you that uh, people just, you know, throw anything out there. And it's easy to hide behind a keyboard, isn't it? Man, you could become this grueling monster 
uh, you know, I, and I've seen this. I've seen this where personalities, the guy on the Internet is this way, and when I meet him in person, he's a kind of a softy, kind of a snowflake, you know. But it's amazing how they, how they take on these personas when they get behind that keyboard. Take that, take that, take that. And they feel good. They peacock, you know, and they strut because they got it all down pat because they, they said it, I'm going to send it, boop, there it goes. Take that, you know. And, and that's the way it is today in some cases, and it's sad. It's unfortunate because it does wreak havoc. It does on relationships because sometimes once it's sent, once it's out there, once that picture is taken, it's out there. Can't take it back. Can't take it back, young people. What you put out there stays out there. It doesn't stay in here anymore. <laughs> it goes out. And so, unlike Las Vegas, it doesn't stay in one place. So, I need your prayers. You need mine. Mutually, we can hopefully benefit one another. So, don't be in, uh, discouraged in your prayers when perhaps answers don't come at the speed or pace that you would like them to come, and that'll be something we'll be addressing. But instead, persevere. Persevere in your prayers. And I guarantee, brethren, I guarantee you will see results.